I feel kind of festive, don't you? <laughs> oh my. Hello, friends. Your humble host back once again with another great Christmas edition of Sounds Like Radio. Yeah, a goodie today because we've got another Gene Shepherd show and the perfect time to listen to Gene Shepherd weave his fantastic tales is at Christmas time. And Gene Shepard's going to tell you a couple of different stories here. One involves when he was a little kid getting a game from his uncle, who would usually give him unusual presents. And he's going to talk about games that little kids like to play. He's going to read a letter from a kid. And then he's going to talk about uh, a, a Christmas t- that he spent in the Army. Yes, so there's a lot of different stories here from Gene Shepard, but they all involve Christmas. Eh, yeah, all right, this one comes from December 21st of 1972. Let's listen now to a Gene Shepard Christmas program, one of many, by the way, on Sounds Like Radio's Library of Sound. I am your humble host, and let's listen to Gene right now. Once again, now, to take the bull by the horns and move right in and uh, fight right away. You know, take take the, everything. Morning, is Hello there. Take everything by the horns and go. My God. I finally started to happen. I began to feel slight twinges of the Christmas spirit is beginning to slowly filter through my nerve endings. Well, of course, you realize this is also the madness time of the year. And uh, tonight, I don't. this is an absolute first. It's the first time there's been a complete Christmas newscast of nothing but Christmas news. Would you like to hear a Christmas newscast? You know, that's not a bad idea, come to think of it. <laughs> a Christmas newscast delivered by Santa Claus. So would you prepare my theme in there for my Christmas newscast? It's a special yearly edition of... Uh, 
No, George, that ain't it. No, no, no. Give me something that goes fast, man. Come on. Give me jingle bells if you can't find anything else on there. I don't know what happened to that one cut. Give me jingle bells. It's got to be... A theme opens up fast, man. You don't open up with a giant choir singing all Lang Syne. Give me something good there. Here we go. Here we go. All right, one, two, three. Let's go, George. Come on. There we go. Christmas fans, Santa Claus here with Christmas news from all over the world. Yes, Christmas is beginning to spread over the globe, and we have Christmas news for you this night. Christmas news here, there, and everywhere. You can reset that, please, George. Oh, why, George, Santa Claus here with Christmas news. And now here is our first little bit of Christmas news that I'm sure all of you are going to enjoy. <laughs> it's from Ipswich, England, and they certainly celebrate Christmas every year there. Santa always enjoys his visits there. Sculptor Daniel Booth escaped the fine for illegal parking when he told the judge a steel statue of a rhinoceros that he was buying for a Christmas gift was too heavy to carry, so he left it in his car near the place where he bought it. Isn't that a wonderful Christmas story? What a great Christmas gift. A steel rhinoceros. Too large to put in your car. Oh, here's a nice Christmas story I think all of you kiddies are going to enjoy from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It's been a rough week for poor old Santa down there. George Underwood, who is one of Santa's helpers, said that after his appearance as Santa at the Coral Ridge Shopping Center, that one of the kiddies, one of the little kiddies who sat on his lap, had done more <laughs> than just ask for Christmas goodies. He had lifted Santa's wallet. <laughs> well, I'm not jolly anymore, said Santa's helper. I don't dislike the kids, but some of them are really being awful rotten. That's all I got to say. During the weekend, Santa's helper said that he was pelted by candy while passing out goodies to hundreds of kids. They even threw rocks at him. And we quote him, most of the kids are really great. <laughs> yes, indeed. But there are many who try to pull off my beard and call me a fake. I take that kid aside and I say to him, and we quote here, Santa, you... Yes, sir, Santa... Talking to you, kid, shape up, kid, or Santa's going to belt you right in the mouth. Ho, 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 ho. And now, let's hear the next kitty. <laughs> yes, and more news from Santa's little helpers everywhere. The National Consumers Association of Germany estimates that West Germans will put on 36,000 tons of extra fat from overeating during the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Pull oh. at that, George. Can you imagine? The Germans are going to put on 36,000 tons of extra fat from overeating during the Christmas and New Year's holidays. 
<laughs> 36,000 tons of suet. Hey, did you hear about the newest big thing that's been happening at Christmas, though? That ain't funny, friends, uh, that, uh, that there's been a fantastic rash of Christmas tree rustling. Guys rustling Christmas. Did you hear about that? That's right. Uh, in fact, here's a notice. This Christmas tree rustling has become such a problem in the Pacific Northwest that the FBI has now stepped into the picture. Uh, supervisor something or other of uh, Suquamish National Forest called in the rangers, the federal government, after guards and uh, various other types were unable to halt poaching of Christmas trees <laughs> from their area. You know, that would make a fantastic... Uh, uh, can't you see what a great... Uh, what a great... Uh, episode that would make on Bonanza. These guys galloping up, you know, to Posse, and uh, they're rustling Christmas trees. And uh, Jim Arness gets after him. And, you know, you could, bring, you could make it all a kind of a Christmassy thing, you know, a big shootout down there, and one of the rustlers is dressed like Santa Claus. It's a fantastic issue. You know, speaking of, uh, of, uh, of Christmas... Uh, we've got about 12,000 uh, commercials here tonight, so get ready for it. <laughs> it's Christmas, and they're sprinkling down, but it won't be long at the end of the season it stops. And, uh, George, before we go any further, let's see, it's, it's kind of early in the evening. Before we do anything else, get out that, uh, get me that uh, one-man band record. Okay, pick it up, set it down. One-man band record. And uh, give me... Uh, the Saints. Okay, important announcement. Here we go. Come on, bring it up big. Come on, big, 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 all the way. All it's there now. Okay, now you can start timing me. <laughs> I've been getting uh, like 12 million letters a day from people asking me about my new book, A Ferrari in the Bedroom, and it's published by Dodd Mead, and I can't answer the letters because a lot of people apparently like to give books for Christmas and so on. So I'm going to answer it over the air right now. The Ferrari in the Bedroom is available in all bookstores, in fact, throughout the country. Uh, you can get it at Double Days. You can get it at Abraham and Strauss, Wanamaker, Bloomingdale's. Every bookstore in the country should have copies of, of uh, The Ferrari in the Bedroom, and it was published by Dodd Mead. Now, there are other books... Uh, people ask me about those, too. In God We Trust is still available, and you can get it in your bookstore, as is Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. But the one that everybody's writing about is the Ferrari in the Bedroom, Dodd Mead, and you can get it at your bookstore. Now, that's all I can say about it. Uh, don't write to me and say, please send me a book. I'm not in the book selling business. I write them. And uh, now it's... Uh, <laughs> no, that's a fact. People write to you, and they say, please, you know. I wonder if Norman Mailer gets letters like that. I'll bet he does, you know. All right. Uh, speaking of important type announcements, this is the uh, New York Times here. It's the season for performances of Handel's Messiah. And in the arts and leisure section of Sunday's New York Times, music critic Harold Schoenberg tells you interesting backgrounds of the first performance of the Messiah. It took place in Dublin, of all places, 230 years ago, with Handel himself playing his compositions on the organ during the intervals. He was just a, a halftime player. So the Sunday Arts and Leisure section lists more than 80 musical events that are taking place in New York City this week, including five messiahs. That sounds kind of eerie. Five messiahs are appearing in New York over the weekend. Anyway, call the Times at MU7-0700 to get 
delivery on the Times, and pick it up at the newsstand, the New York Times, the big fat Sunday one. You know, speaking of uh, of Christmas, you want to hear a great letter? No, seriously, you want to hear a great letter? Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a, you can put that up there. I want to I want to read a great letter to you to show you that not all kids are taken in by life <laughs> that we are part of these days. It's a it's a letter from a kid. And will not. Uh, in fact, the kid doesn't even uh, sign his name. Just a spy. It's a kid spy. Now I'm going to read it to you exactly the way it was written. I'm not even changing a word. It's a shepherd. I happen to be sick and home from school, and uh, just lying around. It says uh, there is there is one. I can't read really read this writing here. There is one TV kitchen. I oh. There isn't. TV is kid shows. It's strange writing. Anyway, I myself am not a kid, actually. I am 13. <laughs> it says, uh, but on kid shows, this is the kids watching these kid shows, but on kid shows, they have kid commercials. Have you seen those kid commercials for toys? So some of these really get me mad. Now, this is a kid talking. One of them is a game for suburban kids, of which I am one. Suburbia kids called. Have you seen this game? called Down the Drain. Down the Drain. It comes with a little plastic sewer. He's not kidding. With a realistic plastic grill on top. Also, a bunch of magnetic coins and four plastic sticks, complete with knot holes, etc., with magnets on the end. The object of the game is to see how many coins you can get out of the sewer. The kid says, some game. <laughs> Well, no, this, this, and you think this is a joke. I'm, I'm sure you're probably thinking, no, they don't have such a game. They do. And, and, uh, see, vicarious experience is the lot of the uh, suburban kid and has to be prepared for them. Now, city kids really do that. I mean, you I've seen them, you know, you've done it, no doubt. Taking a thing down there and fished for nickels and dimes and quarters down in the, uh, down in the sewer. Well, you know, a kid living in Darien is not going to lay around the street fishing for dimes in a sewer. So he has a little plastic sewer and plays with it at home, you know. It's called uh, Down the Drain. Here's another one. There is another game called, and this is a kid writing, remember. This is another game called Bug Out. <laughs> Bug Out. This comes with a plastic cage and four grotesque, gigantic, green plastic bugs. The object of this game is to grab one of the bugs with one of your little plastic hooks that come with the game and pull the bug out of the cage while fighting off all the other people trying to get your bug, too. How's that for a simple-minded game? Kid says, ugh. Along with all the Monopoly and Parcheesi games that are being advertised, there is one game that must be a terrific bomb. <laughs> this goodie is called Dealer's Choice. Have you seen that one? Now, if you know, it really, it really, I think the games that people play and I'm not using the name of the book as a title. I'm talking about the real games that people play. You know, the games that people play, not the psychological games, tell a lot more about the society than almost any other single thing that, uh, that is around. Uh, this is WOR New York. Now, for example, Monopoly is a great example of a game that, that, that people play. What is it about? It's about money. It's about buying and selling and getting a hold of a whole lot of dough. That's the whole object of the game, is to get more money than anybody else. Well, it is also one of the most successful games in the history of games. 
Now, now there has to be a connection. Uh, so, so I wonder if they play Monopoly in Russia. <laughs> That's a funny idea. <laughs> you imagine two guys playing an underground game of Monopoly in Kiev, and they get raided by the by the secret police <laughs> for capitalistic behavior. But uh, nevertheless, these uh, you know, the, the, it's I think interesting that Monopoly became a serious national game during the days of the Depression. That's when it really hit, when absolutely nobody had any money, obviously. And so night after night, they would dream about money and sit and play games with paper money. And uh, it became a tremendous success. Well, you want to hear another game? This, I think, is very much along the same line. You know, we're living in very cynical times uh, for one reason or another. I don't know why. We are. We're not living in romantic times, uh, obviously. Uh, the romantic age, I guess, went out about 1890. <laughs> When, uh, when games were very romantic. People played very romantic games. Uh, today, we have games that are very definitely based on other things. For example, uh, the one uh, about the sewer. Now, that's a romantic idea, uh, getting coins out of the sewer. Here's a game, he says, a goodie called Dealer's Choice. The wheeling, dealing, used car game. So I couldn't believe it. Says the ad says, quote, each player's a hard-nosed used car dealer. Each player is a hard, tough dealer. He bids on 24 cars. He consults Blue Book. He haggles about deals. He argues back and forth. And he tries to destroy his opponent. And he also tries to destroy his opponent's cars. And he also tries to sell his cars for prices way above and beyond their worth. It's called Wheeler Dealer. I don't, yeah, it's called Wheeling Dealer. It's called the Wheeling Dealing Dealer's Choice. Fantastic game. Learn how to be a real think. Play the game. <laughs> now that's a fascinating game. He says. He says these games are bad enough, but the 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 really uh, insane toy that is impossible. He says for kids that are too lazy. Remember, this is a kid writing. That are too lazy or not creative enough to do anything by themselves. Have you heard of this one? It is a game called. Whittle away. Whittle away. It comes with three plastic logs. He says, why is everything plastic? A plastic knife and paints. If you take the knife and start carving away at these logs, just carving away, a little figure appears that you can't cut through, and the whole thing is that you cut off the plastic around this little figure, and it comes off, and there's the figure. <laughs> in other words, you're, 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 have you seen that? You're faking it. He says, uh, and then you can pretend that you're really a woodcarver. It says, yes, uh, the ad promotes, now it's easy to get fun out of woodcarving the very first time you try. Yes, be a sculptor right away. Easy. And then the kid goes, ah! He says, Merry Christmas, Shep. And may, your, may all of your coins come out of the sewer. May you pull all of your bugs out of the cage. May you win all of the used cars, and may all of your little plastic logs be whittled away happily. Signed, a spy. <laughs> now, you know, that, uh, now there's, a, there's a kid. See, he sees this stuff. And uh, that reminds me, you know, that, that really reminds me. I remember when I was a kid, talk about games. I always, the funny thing about games, when you get games as gifts, do you remember any of the specific gifts you got as a kid? 
Now, do you remember any of the actual gifts you got, George? What did you get? Do you remember one gift you got, George, a specific gift? Do you remember a specific gift? Try to think now. Come on, seriously. You don't remember anything you ever got? Oh, that's hard to believe. Jerry, do you remember anything you ever got? Did you ever get a game? Well, I, I remember one strange thing that happened to me. Talk, no, talking about games. Uh, I was about, I must have been about, oh, not more than about seven or eight. You know, and Christmas is fantastic when you're about seven or eight, nine years old. And, uh, oh, you know, they'd be hiding packages and all that stuff, and you'd see all this fantastic stuff in, in the department stores. And there was a department store in our town that had a gigantic window, tremendous window full of things, you know, seven dwarfs. And uh, they had motors in them, and they were pounding away with hammers and saws, and they were making sleds and building airplanes. And uh, all the while, you could hear Bing Crosby. They had loudspeakers outside, and Bing Crosby's always singing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, going on and on. And we'd get down, and we'd look at all this stuff in the toy department. Well, I, I'd see a lot of great stuff. You know, I'd see stuff that I really thought I'd like to have. And, you know, you'd make hints. You'd say, oh, gee, it would be great to have one of those things, you know, that uh, you, you, you light the fuse and it sends a bomb up and it uh, <laughs> blows up and little Christmas trees come down on parachutes. Great, you know. And I, I'd go around and look at this stuff. Well, one Christmas, I don't know why this happened. It was a strange, strange Christmas. I had, I had an aunt and an uncle uh, who uh, would come over. We would see them about once a year. And uh, usually about Christmas time, they'd come over and they'd have a Christmas gift, usually one for me and my kid brother. And it was usually a pretty good gift, you know. Uh, my Uncle Tom, the bootlegger uncle. And, uh, yeah, he was a bootlegger. <laughs> well, I didn't know it at the time, you know, being a kid. I just thought he was my rich uncle. Uh, but uh, he was he was, he was, uh, he was uh, doing a little hanky-panky. I learned later on when I got a little older, began, you know, began to understand these things. Because as a kid, I never could understand why he had a gigantic dog. He had a dog that was about nine feet tall named King. And this dog was so tough one day he ate the garage. You know, he was just a tremendous dog. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but he was, he was a big, fat guy. He would come over. And uh, uh, Uncle Tom would just come over about once a year, maybe twice a year. Kind of a mysterious uncle. And on this one Christmas, looking forward, you know, really looking forward to Christmas and looking forward to his gift. And so, sure enough, he shows up. And it was Christmas Day. Everybody's standing around, and Christmas tree is going. And Uncle Tom has this big box for me, tremendous box, big, beautiful, big, flat box. And I'm about seven or eight years old. And, jeez, uh, you know, what is it? And I, I open this package. I'll take off the paper. My mother's saying, well, now, what, now be nice to Uncle Tom. Tell him thank you. I said, thanks, Uncle Tom. I open this thing up. Take the box, the top of the box off, and inside is a long piece of wood, a piece of square wood with holes drilled in it, just a piece of wood, with a little box next to it, and in that little box are like little pegs. I said, what is it? Uncle Tob says, well, Merry Christmas. I said, Gee, it's great. What is it? He said, well, it's a game. Don't you play games? I have been given, at the age of seven, a game of cribbage. Did any of you ever hear of cribbage? 
to this day, I remember the tremendous sense of letdown. It was an unbelievable letdown. You know, it's like it's like opening up your Christmas gift and it's four pairs of socks. Cribbage. And I said, cribbage? And my mother says, yes, that's a game. You play cribbage. Well, somehow he had gotten, uh, you know, in the toy department and they had sold him this cribbage game. Well, cribbage is a game that uh, very, very elderly people play. <laughs> Not only elderly people, but you got to know it. That's like giving a kid a poker set. He's seven. You know, <laughs> no way. <laughs> so here I had this cribbage set. And I always, I always remember that 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 game. But you know, there was one game that got me, and I don't know why it got me. One game that to this day I remember with a curious sense of pleasure. You know, one of the most uh, uh, one of the most popular games. In fact, it's it's uh, it's the premise upon which a lot of games are based. Is the game is the game which which has a track some kind of a track, and all the players start at one point of the track, and you have a pointer. Now, you can either have a pointer, or you can have dice, uh, or, you know, something like that. But this particular game folded like a checkerboard game, and I was about eight or nine, and over this game, by the way, developed one of the, one of the worst fights that I've ever had in my life. You know, games often lead to fights. I wonder how many guys have gotten cut up uh, starting with a friendly game. You know, a friendly game. Well, this particular game folded out like a card, uh, almost like a checkerboard thing. Folded out, and it had two cardboard sides to it. It came with a set of dice. And not only a set of dice, but a set of little cards. You know, like the kind of cards you get with the Monopoly. And, and four little tiny lead racing cards. A different color for each card. Blue, green, yellow, red. And they start out at the go thing, and it was called, it was called the 500. You know, obviously the Indianapolis 500. So you would spin the pointer, <laughs> okay? The pointer would spin around, and it would point to number seven. Then you would reach into the cards, and you would pull out, say, number seven. It would say, uh, uh, move forward three spaces. At which point you'd move your car forward three spaces. The next kid would spin his. He would move his forward two spaces and then you'd spin the pointer again and it would say take card number 12 you pull up card you have just sprung an oil leak go to the pit stop <laughs> miss one turn oh god you know well we we love to play this game we play this game hour after hour after hour well how the fight came out was one day one day playing this game and I'm spinning the pin. I'm spinning the thing. My kid brother's playing. Flick is playing. And Schwartz is playing. All four of us are kids. By the way, is it, is it my imagination or am I wrong that boys tend to be more game-oriented than girls? I'm just asking a hypothetical question. Is this true or not? No, I don't know. Immediately, I'm going to get 5,000 letters from women who say, well, how dare you say that? I'm just asking a question. <laughs> I I, uh, I don't know, uh, but I, I all I remember about games is continually being seeing a bunch of boys playing them. Uh, you rarely see a bunch of little girls sitting around playing pinochle. In fact, I don't recall ever seeing that. Do you ever, George? 
bunch of girls sitting around playing pinochle at the age of nine, but I've seen a lot of boys sit around play pinochle. Incidentally, that that brings up another whole ball game about uh, kids, boys particularly go through go through cycles, and uh, and you'll 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 start doing something and you will do it steadily night and day for about three or four weeks, and then suddenly you will stop. Bam, it's all over. Well, we went through a cycle playing that damn five hundred game. We raced every day. Hour after hour after hour, and the game would take weeks. You know, I don't, I don't know of anybody who's ever finished a Monopoly game. Actually, finished one. I mean, most people just sort of peter out after about seven or eight hours of, of you know, fooling them. All right, okay, you win, Charlie. Yeah, okay, you win. And that's the end of the game. Nobody ever really wins Monopoly. You just sort of, you just sort of are ahead at the end when everybody quits. When the beer runs out, they say, "Hell with it," and they go home. I've seen Monopoly games go on for every maybe every bit of a month. They just keep going on. Well, in this particular game, this 500 game, we're playing away there, seeing I hit the pointer. And and after you play a game uh, over a certain length of time, you begin to get a short temper. I don't know why it is. People, people, it's maybe tiredness, maybe irritation, maybe a combination of, of a lot of things. And so Flick hit the pointer, spun the pointer, and it comes up, uh, you have just crashed into the wall. Your car has to be repaired. Missed three turns. Well, Flick's sitting there, but. Well, we start going again. Schwartz spins his point. I spin my point. Bruner spins his point. Then it goes back again. Schwartz, his pointer. My pointer. Flick's getting madder. We're still playing. We go around twice, at which point Flick says, okay, it's my turn. Schwartz says, you're supposed to miss three turns. Flick says, no, the game means on the third turn, you go. Schwartz says, no, you missed three turns. We go around once more. Flick says, it's my turn. And he grabs the pointer. <laughs> Kids are very direct. He grabs the pointer. He says, I'm going to spin it. Schwartz says, oh, no, you don't. And with that, he just reaches over and grabs the pointer out of Flick's hand. He says, you miss one more turn. And then Bruner gets in the act. He says, come on, Schwartz, quit pulling a pointer. You're bending a pin. Which point Flick says, give me a pointer. And he reaches over and grabs it. Flick says, no, you miss another turn. Because he and Flick were constantly battling it out. Me and Bruner, by the way, were always has-beens or also-rans in all these games. So we were just sitting back. Finally, I says, you're tearing my game. It's my game. And within 30 seconds, we are rolling around on the floor. The game is wrecked. Flick is hollering and yelling, hitting Schwartz. Schwartz is yelling and hollering, hitting Bruner. Bruner is laying under the card table. And my mother's coming in and pouring bridge mix all over everybody. And she says, all right, stop it, stop it, no more. It's the end of that game. You're never going to play it again. Plug, gone. She wrapped it up, put it in the box, and threw it in the furnace. End of the game. To this day, it comes up when I talk to my mother. Once in a great while, my mother said, do you remember the time you and Flick and Bruner and Schwartz had to fight over that silly game? You know, you never forget those things. 
I feel a little prickling around the back of my neck. I get mad again. How they burnt my game in the furnace. Do you ever have something thrown in the furnace you had? Your mother says, all right, I've had enough of that. It's going in the furnace. <laughs> Speaking of having enough of it, how about a couple of commercials? Would you please hit the money button, George? And now, the continuing adventures of Shoetown's own Super Shoe. We return to the exciting case of the gang that stole Santa. Gosh, Super Shoe, we've flown everywhere looking for Santa Claus. Italy, France, South America. We've hardly had time to look for the first quality famous name great value shoes for the entire family for Lionel's Shoetown stores. Gee, Super Shoe, I hope Lionel won't be angry. Santa Claus missing, and only Shoe Town Super Shoe can find him. Why he's circling the globe looking for famous brand shoes to sell at incredibly low Shoe Town prices. Right, men. Right now, Shoe Towns in New York and New Jersey, except Ocean and Mercer counties, <laughs> have famous stretch totes for just three forty-nine. That's those uh, rubber boots, you know. You just pull them on like that. They're slightly irregular, but they look great. Three forty-nine at Shoe Town. The very same totes, if they were perfect, sell nationally for six bucks. So for famous totes for men, head for Shoe Town right now. Dum dum dum. Let's see. Uh, oh, here's a message from New York Magazine, your friends. So you've spent another year in New York. Hey, this is a great little Christmas issue. Somebody had a <laughs> what a Christmas issue. So you've spent another year in New York with its unbelievable pressures on your mind and your body. Well, congratulations. Uh, New York uh, has a, an issue here about all the stresses in New York. How much is good for you? How to rate your stress quotient? You know, a little quiz. Are you a schizo? Uh, answer the ten questions below. Uh, are you a paranoid? Uh, it even makes a, over your personality. So you ought to pick up this copy. It's a, it's a fun Christmas issue. New York's year-end stress double issue. Yes, sir. We'll get it all together. Only in New York would they think of putting together... A Christmas issue about whether you're going out of your bird or not. And, uh, let's see, Gramercy Park Close of 64 West 23rd Street in New York says, Mister, just because you're a big-sized guy, you weigh a size 422 shirt, that doesn't mean you cannot save money on your clothes. Gramercy Park doesn't care if you're big and tall, short and fat, squat or in between. What's a couple of inches of cloth, more or less, they say. However, uh, if you want to save money on your clothes, if you're a gigantic person, and, uh, you know, you look like an enormous thing with the feet sticking out of the bottom, they'll make you look like a handsome, tall, thin gentleman. It's uh, Gramercy Park, 64 West 23rd Street, third floor. 64 West 23rd Street in New York. Now, of course, this is the Christmas season coming, and you want to live that elegant life, right? And what is more elegant than to serve with your meatloaf and your canned zucchini, some elegant French wines. And if you cannot uh, pick uh, the right French wines because you don't know much about them, trust Alexis Lachine. They select the right wines, the reds, the whites, the rosés, the purples, and the greens. And then these superlative wines are poured into gracious, distinctive bottles to grace your table. Add a little touch of elegance out there in Queens. You don't have to be a wine expert to serve wines that will have your friends calling you, Hi, I mean a wine expert. Just remember, Alexis Lachine, the beautiful French wine in the beautiful bottle. Alexis Lachine is imported by Bass Charrington Vintners of New York. Sing, baby. Alexis 
Do you suppose there lived anywhere across this fabulous country a family that has never eaten at Mama Leone's? Maybe there is, and don't you feel sorry for them? Never heard the noise and laughter of our nightly crowd? Never saw their kids light up at the very color and excitement of our decor? Never saw our statues? Never saw our endless wine cellar? And not only that, they probably never saw a parade of food like Mama serves. Oh, sure, they've had Italian food before, but so what? They haven't had Mama's antipasto. They haven't had the cheeses and rich hot bread and the enormous desserts that Mama serves. And finally, they never, ever had main courses that everything else was built around. We seriously suggest if you have a pathetic friend who's never been to Mama Leone's, change his life. Make a reservation for him immediately and let him see what a great Italian restaurant can be like. Take him to Mama Leone's, where strong appetites are met and conquered. Mama Leone's, 239 West 48th Street, Judson 65151. And uh, one more little goodie, please, George. Gentle time, the same driver's hired company. Oh, yes, uh, here's a safe driving tip from General Tire. If your car starts to skid on slick, icy roads, be sure to have your insurance paid up. For dependable, sure-foot attraction this winter, you need General Tire. Cleat snow tires are beautiful tires. Yes, sir, they're deep, wide, rich, four-rib tread, strong, four-ply construction. And this promise, remember their promise, you go in snow or General pays the toe. Get a pair of winter cleat snow tires today at your local General Tire Deer or your local General Tire store. It's listed in the yellow pages under big red G for General. Sing it out, sing. Let's see. Uh, yeah. Hey, you know, speaking of uh, Christmas, <laughs> you know, it's been a long time. And uh, I'm going to... I... Uh, I I uh, I have a hearing about those tires and all that reminds me of a thing, and I'm going to tell you an army story. Do you mind an army story, George? One of the great Christmas days that I ever spent in my life. It's a funny feeling. Uh, I was in this camp way out in the in the Ozarks, and for those of you who don't know much about the army, they have a thing called a motor pool. Now, if you don't know what the motor pool is, the motor pool is like that great big Hertz in the sky. It's where all the vehicles, as they call them, in the, they, 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 you were in the Marines, George. Did they call them the vehicles? A vehicle? Uh, the Army and the Marines, they all have these things. Like, for example, when you're out, uh, I, did you ever have the, the I, I, in fact, I did it, the, the urge to correct somebody in your company when he used one of those phrases which are very, very... Uh, uh, common in the Army or the Marines. For example, I was in the Army about 20 minutes, and I was in my first drill formation when they were showing us how to do various types of drills. Like, for example, the sergeant is out there and says, Now, the corporal will demonstrate right face. On the command, right, you drop your weight to the ball of your right foot, right. You pivot on your heel and on the ball of your left foot. When I say right face, you'll notice the corporal goes right face. Now, all of you try it. Now, a ten, hut, right face. 
Wait until you hear the second command, the execution command. I will do it once more. Right. Face. Now, you will exactly reverse that procedure on the command. Left. Face. And so we're out there doing this, and I, I'm in the Army about eight minutes. <laughs> and we're, you know, you feel a little silly when you first start doing that stuff. After a while, it becomes routine. Uh, but when you first start doing it, you feel kind of, you know, kind of silly. You're, there you are, dressed up in a suit, and uh, the sergeant, he's very serious. He does not laugh. Then he says, now, following command will be performed upon this voice command. Left. Face, forward, harsh. All right, hold it. Hold it, at ease. Hold it, man. Now, the corporal will now demonstrate forward, harsh. You step off on the proper foot. Watch the corporal. As I say, attend, hut, forward, harsh. Hut, ho, he, ho, hop, ho, he, ho, hop, ho, he, ho. Two, three, four, one, two, three, halt. All right. Corporal, about face. Forward, hard. Ha, two, three, four, ha, two, three, four, ha, two, three, four, ha, two, three, four, one, two, three, and halt. Now, all you men have observed those following movements. And now, we will try to do this Together as a squad. Dead hut. Right face. Forward. Hark. Hup. Two. He. Four. Hup. Two. He. Four. Hup. Two. He. Four. Swing your arms. Hup. Two. He. Four. Hup. Two. Three. Four. Heads up. Come on. Heads up, soldier. Hup. Two. Three. Four. Hup. Two. Three. Four. One. Two. Three. And hold. Have you heard that, George? Sounds familiar, don't it? But then he did this one. He said, now, watch the corporal as I give him this command. Then hut. Forward. Hot. Hup. Two. Three. Four. Hup. Two. Three. Four. Oblige. Hut. Hup. Two. Three. Four. Hup. Two. Three. Four. Forward. Hut. Hup. Two. Three. Four. Upon the command of Oblique Harch, I couldn't figure out what the hell he was talking about. Oblique Harch. I always thought it was oblique. <laughs> so, being shepherd, I raise my hand and say, Excuse me, Sergeant. He says, Yes, yes, soldier. Uh, what's your name first? He says, Shepherd JP 16098 and 46. What's your question, soldier? Excuse me, Sergeant, but, uh, isn't that word oblique, isn't it actually pronounced oblique instead of oblique? I don't have to tell you. The following scene is too painful to relate. <laughs> he made references to uh, people with college educations. He made references to all kinds of... Well, he actually referred very, very scathingly to my ancestry. Now, I don't know how he knew my mother. I have no idea. But uh, he certainly certainly seemed very sure of himself. But three months later, 
you know, after having marched for endless hours under the sun and under the rain and under the snow with that sergeant, it's a whole different ballgame. We were tall, cool, thin veterans. And one night, that sergeant took me to town in a half-track. He and I drove into town in a half-track. We stopped at Red's Saloon and Diner. Parked it out in front of a half-track with the big area sticking up. I walked in there looking hard and cool with a steel helmet on. Sat down at the bar. The sergeant said, hi, Red. Red said, boy, what a truck you guys got out there. The sergeant said, it's a half-track. And Red says, how about me setting them up for you guys? Christmas coming up, coming on like that. How about a Tom and Jerry? And two of us, me and the sergeant, sat there and drank Tom and Jerry's. 15, 20, everybody come in, buy us a drink. We're sitting there with our steel helmets with our half-track park out in front. The greatest decoy I ever saw. They all wanted to come and sit in it. We let them sit in the front seat, you know, pretend like we're driving it. Finally, after about a half-dozen half-track, you know, half-track Tom and Jerry's, me and the sergeant walk back, sit down in the half-track, way high, you're looking down on the cars. He let me drive. Of course, he had maybe 15 or 20 Tom and Jerry's more than I did. I'd better drive. He says, put it in first, soldier. Let's get back to camp. Arch! <laughs> this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for... Your humble host... Yeah, that was a great Gene Shepherd Christmas show. That one was from December 21st of 1972. Gene Shepherd talking all about Christmas there. We hope you enjoyed it. I am your humble host for Sounds Like Radio's Library of Sound, the Gene Shepherd editions, in particular the special Christmas episodes of Gene Shepherd. Till next time then, I am me saying so long for now. Goodbye, everybody, and Merry Christmas to you.